2: The show and podcast will inform, educate, and illuminate the transformation joy and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture, aficionado, and principal of Accurate Tom Dioro.
1: Thank you, Charlotte, for our guest today. Please welcome Randy Pfizer, CEO of the American Society of Interior Designers, or ASID. ASID, A-S-I-D. A-S-I-D. helps spread the mission of design impacts life. I love that. Design impacts life. As a CEO, Randy leads the society's 25,000 plus members from commercial and residential sectors across North America to advance the profession and communicate the transformative power of design on people's lives. For more information, feel free to visit www.acid.org. That's www.asid.org. Hello, Randy. Thank you very much for being on the Modern Architect Show today. We're honored.
3: Hello, Tom. It's great to be here, and thank you so much for having me.
1: Oh, looking forward to this, really. Randy, you know what? I I like to share some early inspirations, if you will, of how you began seeing where you are now, and how that may have transpired. Even, even go back as far as you can, and like where you can kind of sit with yourself and say, you know what, Randy? I'm talking like I'm Randy. Randy, I think you know, uh, (laughs) I, I really believe in design, and how can I get into this fast, and how can I, I help be an advocate for it.
3: I have kind of an interesting pathway and journey into becoming the CEO for ASID and it's not a traditional path. So I actually was in business. Um, so I got a bachelor's degree in, in business and I, I have a, a master's in counseling and human development and another master's in uh, an MBA. And I spent you know a decade of my life doing management consulting and and actually working inside businesses and doing large-scale organizational change work. And I decided to um, leave sort of the corporate side of the world and move into nonprofits and landed um, as the Director of Strategic Planning and Management for the Fannie Mae Foundation, yeah. um, which was the philanthropic arm of Fannie Mae. And our investment work that we did at Fannie Mae was in affordable housing, and so we were looking to rebuild communities and, and neighborhoods um, through our investments and help people who were increase the supply of affordable housing um, because there was obviously a huge demand. Um, I know you guys are in Northern California, and obviously the cost of housing there is astronomical, um, and sure. and folks who are teachers and firefighters and nurses you know, can't even afford to live in neighborhoods uh, where they're serving the community that they are employed to you know, teach in schools and, and or work in hospitals. And that mission really grabbed a hold of me. And as a part of that work that I was doing when I was at Fannie Mae, one of the things that we came across was this concept of nimbyism, not in my backyard. Um, so everybody believes that people deserve affordable housing. They just don't want it next to them. And so we really dug into that a lot in our research and found that part of the reason was one of people had this vision of who that community that they were going to have living next to them was really going was going to be and had very negative perceptions about the types of people that needed affordable housing. And the other was that they thought affordable housing was going to be sort of ugly. It was going to be like tenement buildings. So I began to actually, in that work at Fannie Mae, began to understand both the messaging around design and community and other things and how to change terminology to make it more powerful and acceptable for um, people to uh, want and embrace affordable housing. Um, and part of it was also the visualization of it and what designers do to create you know, mixed-use communities and, and how that really looks and in a real well-designed neighborhood So that was kind of my first foray into this world of taking my business mind and my organizational change mind and applying it to a problem that our society was sort of struggling with uh, in this lack of affordable housing and and development in communities. Mm -hmm. And I went on from there into another opportunity that I had with Brad Pitt, in the Lower Ninth Ward of New Orleans with the Make It Right Foundation. And, you know, that was after Hurricane Katrina. And Brad really was invested in rebuilding a neighborhood that was – being overlooked because again it was lower socioeconomic, it was predominantly black, but it happened to also have this strong ethic of homeownership as a part of it, so everybody owned their houses they were passed down from generation to generation, and he thought it was a travesty that the that neighborhood wasn't being rebuilt and so um, you know we had this organization and through his ability to raise funds, got architects and designers to create one of the, the world 's largest lead platinum um, home, single family home community in the world. The world, um, not
1: just the U.S. The
3: in the world, yeah, in the world. And it was, you know, in the United States and New Orleans. And, you know, I, I did some other nonprofit work in education reform and others, but there, this opportunity came where ASID was about ready to go through a transformation. And they were had a 19-year veteran CEO in the organization before me who was retiring, and the board took that opportunity to pause and look at ASID and say, you know, what can we do differently going forward? And so they kind of thought about this future of what design really was intended to do and really wanted to be transformative. And I happened to meet the the goals that they were looking for in a CEO, and it mapped to my desire to continue on with some of those efforts that um, I had been involved in earlier in my career. So... You know, ASID really stepped into this design impacts life component of looking at how design impacts health, wellness, and well being. And I have taken that calling of the board and just really tried to focus on our research and other things to lead this, the charge as an organization to, to really demonstrate how spaces impact human beings. I love um, And why designer and design matters in our society.
1: Yeah, that, why it matters. So where, where did you get that sense of, uh, you got a lot of heart, Randy. I love it. Yeah. You got hard into this. This isn't just a, you know, a CEO title for you.
3: You you're you're, uh,
1: you're invested with everything you got it sounds like in my offer. It,
3: it uh, no, it, you know, I have often thought back of where that calling in my life kind of came from. Um and I just have always had this innate desire to make the world a better place uh from the one that I was born into. And so I've Try to find ways when I was a student um, to now to you know to see where I can make a positive impact and and with whatever skills I have to to offer to folks and 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 do it in servitude and as humbly as possible. I don't feel like I have the answers to anything, but I absolutely have the passion to to take what other people do and to try to elevate it as much as possible.
1: Yeah, but that that human development background that you have in. Was that a, a field you you kind of backed into, or no? Something you you liked the dynamics of what you can you know of human development?
3: Yeah, I, it was always people focused in my life. Um, so even when I was in the my undergraduate business degree, I was it was in on the human resource side of business, and the the masters came because I was when I was in college, I. Was getting really involved in um, student leadership, and and I was an, a resident assistant running a residence hall or a floor in a residence hall, and I actually found out that there was a career to be had in that um, if you um, w- with a master's degree and it's called student personnel in higher education, and the focus is understanding cognitive, emotional development of people and um, and sort of an evolution of transitioning adolescence into adulthood. And so, uh, you know, my first job really out of grad school was at George Washington University. I went to the University of Georgia for grad school, and I, I was running residence halls and, and working in the dean of students' office and, and running leadership programs um, for the university and doing it all with this lens towards diversity and inclusion and how do we really help create the best society going forward with the future leaders of our country, you know, going through the the um, university <laughs> environment. So... Um, so yeah, there's always been a kind of a people connection there. So you kind of picked up on that. <laughs> yeah,
1: and, and how how is that people connection even working? Uh, being the CEO, the uh, Society Associate American, come on, Tom, <laughs> American Society <laughs> <of> Interior <laughs> D- Designers. How do you elevate that even more so within the the organization? Well.
3: You know, part of it is creating a community of people who believe in a vision and a, a mission of an organization and aspire to um, to see that elevated in our society and to solve problems through their work. And part of it is changing the hearts and minds of others, um, I think, in uh, what they're Preconceived notions maybe of what interior designers do. Um, I think you know in the the architecture and design world, um, there's a lot of misconceptions about what an interior designer does. We we often think about it being one dimensionally as paint colors and fabrics and and patterns, but there it's so multidimensional um, and really. You know, as human beings, we're now spending 93% of our time indoors, which is not what human beings were designed to do. And the fact that we're indoors means that we're disconnected from a lot of things that really support our bodies physical activity and functioning and designers understand, interior designers understand how to create spaces that reconnect human beings to nature and to space in a way that really supports our living and breathing and and healing in in lots of different ways. And and I I think my job and what I love about it is that I get to rally a community of people who want people to understand that that's what they do in their work every day and to really push that message to a much larger community of folks who who may not think that they they either need that or understand that there are professionals out there that actually do that for them and then that connection point of it it, and it's Accessible to everyone. Um, it's not just for the rich. It's not just for the uber wealthy, and and it's not just about lifestyle and brand and other things. It's much more complex than that. And and I think that just really energizes me and it energizes my you know the team that i work with every day and it energizes the community that i represent every day and it just uh, you know it's, it's a lot of fun and i get to do it around the world um, yeah. so taking that message around the globe is just a really exciting and powerful
1: super you're listening to the modern architect kzsu stanford 90.1 fm life moves formerly the envision
2: shelter network has 40 years of experience Helping to end the cycle of homelessness for families and individuals in San Mateo and Santa Clara counties. Life Moves provides interim housing and support services that create opportunities for those affected to rapidly return to stable housing and long-term self-sufficiency. Life Moves relies on generous financial contributions as well as donations of gently used clothes, furniture, or household items. To learn how you can volunteer or donate, visit www.lifemoves.org. That's lifemoves.org.
1: We're talking today with Randy Pfizer, CEO of the American Society of Interior Designers. For more information, feel free to visit www.acid.org. That's www.asid.org. Randy, you talked about the, uh, the breath... And the range of the impact of interior design, and it's not just for obviously the uber wealthy or anyone in particular, well, we all benefit from great design. Can you share with us some examples of projects that you've done that you're really proud of? If you're at liberty to even share the name or if not, that's fine as well.
3: Sure. Um, You you know, and I'm not an interior designer, so I don't practice, but I can share the work of our, my community. You know, one of them, a a great example. So thinking about this from a workplace perspective and, and by the way um, I appreciate you pointing people to uh, ASID.org for more information. There's case studies on our website um, that people can access. You just have to hit on the masthead that says, uh, Design Impacts Life, and it will take you to some of these. But our headquarters here at at ASID is the first office in the world or first space in the world to be certified LEED and Well Platinum. So LEED is sustainability certification for a space. So it looks at energy utilization and performance of the built environment and envelope and how efficiently are you using the space and materials and other things. And then WELL is another certification which looks at the light quality, the air quality, nourishment, uh, water quality, everything that your body needs to function at its highest level um, and what does the built environment do to support that. And we achieved both of those certifications. Um, And we've actually done a lot of research on our headquarters as well to connect the design elements and the certification and the goals that we had to real metrics and and to see if we're actually accomplishing what we set out to do, which was to improve productivity, engagement, and retention of staff and we actually have done that. Um, So we've been in the space uh, over two years, and we've done annually a Post occupancy evaluation uh, is what we refer to it as. Um, so we take what a pre occupancy observation of staff and space um, and then go in after the space is occupied and do another assessment and see if things had moved on the, the measurements that we're putting out there. And there's four different independent studies going on. And the additive story out of those four different research studies is that we have improved productivity in the office. We've decreased absenteeism. Um, so people are out less, uh, sick days every year, um, by 19%. We've decreased, um, our sick leave and we've increased the engagement level of staff by about 19%, which translates to about a $700,000 add to the bottom line of our business every year. We're a $10 million organization and, and that's, that's not anything to sneeze at <laughs> when you think about those metrics. Even in a um, season. and, yeah, and it really translates back into why again design matters and designers matter, and and why they deserve the fees that we pay for their services. But going to some of the, you know, I, I loved uh, the the ad that you ran on on homelessness. We have a, a study going on with Drexel University right now that we funded through our foundation, and it's on a homeless shelter, and it's looking at um, circadian lighting. So circadian lighting is using, if you're in a space um, and you don't have access to natural light, their light changes color and temperature throughout the day as the sun moves across the sky from dusk to dawn. Um, And that light actually impacts our circadian system in our body, which is sort of the orchestra conductor, if you will, for about uh, 2,800 different bodily functions, whether it's hormone production or our organs and how they process toxins or digest food. So that circadian system is really important. Um, And it changes from the time during the day to at night, because we're supposed to be sleeping at night. And we know there's this whole lack of sleep thing going on in our society as well. And part of it is because of the exposure to light that we get throughout the day. So in this homeless shelter, um, which didn't have really good access to natural light, they put in a circadian lighting system. And that means the light color and temperature in the space changes throughout the day and throughout the night. And what they're doing is testing the homeless population to see, one, did it um, actually improve their sleep? Through improved sleep, do we actually see increased positive outcomes with things like depression or substance utilization or other types of chronic elements that um, impact impoverished communities. And then the ultimate goal would be, can we actually see people move out of homeless shelters and into more permanent housing because they have not only had the services that a homeless shelter offers, but actually have been exposed to a better sleep cycle through this circadian design um, lighting system. Wow. And I think that's just fundamentally transformative for our society. I mean, think about the multiple impacts that that has.
1: Yeah. I mean, have you had any um, people that you've talked with that have experienced this, that just either tell you directly or indirectly the, the positive impact that this has in their
3: lives? We are constantly getting those types of messages when we're out talking to folks who had, you know, positively designed interventions and in, in their spaces, and well-designed spaces. We actually, our staff, just in our surveying of our staff pre and post occupancy evaluation, have had our staff report they feel better, they're sleeping better. They're uh, more, you know, engaged, um, you know, above and beyond that, there's pride of place. They feel a sense of pride coming into an office that's uh, designed the way that ours is designed. So it's it really is transformative. And there's been so many studies on both the positive and the negative side of design that I think are really important for This community to embrace and to begin to articulate. Because I I do also believe that if the design community isn't able to effectively articulate this, there really is um, a threat of others that don't have the skills that architects and interior designers and others have. In creating these types of spaces, of them stepping in and undervaluing what it is that these guys do, um, um, this community does, and that, that is so powerful. You know, Harvard or uh, the um, the Harvard's done studies on CO two emissions. Uh, you know, all of us breathe, and uh, obviously, and air circulation in a space is incredibly important. And if CO two levels hit a certain point in um, in a space, cognitive ability actually decreases. Really? Um, So think about that. Decreases. Yes. So that means if if you are Oh my gosh. Go carry
1: on, please. This is awesome. Yeah.
3: um, And I think, um, you know, the other one is there was a, a recent article on the noise level within restaurants and that poorly designed restaurants actually have the same decibel levels as if you were standing on a tarmac. And, imagine you know somebody who has to work in that environment for 8 hours a day much less a patron who just wants to have a conversation that poorly designed acoustically designed space is now potentially going to harm your hearing so how can we uh, elevate this whole dialogue about what design is good design is able to do for folks and and just really stop getting into these you know two dimensional images of space and and just you know saying it's pretty And and using that as the barometer for whether it's well designed or not.
1: Yeah. Let's touch back on this when we return. This is the Modern Architect on KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. The Carter Center is a non
2: governmental charitable organization founded in 1982 by former President Jimmy Carter and First Lady Rosalind Carter in partnership with Atlanta's Emory University. The Carter Center seeks to advance peace and health worldwide in numerous ways, from observing free elections and supporting human rights defenders to funding programs designed to eradicate devastating diseases. To find out how
1: you can get involved or donate, visit cartercenter.org. We're talking today with Randy Pfizer, CEO of the American Society of Interior Designers. For more information, you can visit www.cartercenter.org. Dot .acid.org dot That's www.asid.org Randy, I liked everything that you're saying But to affect and articulate the message accurately So that others don't get in, in its place Can you share with us how, how you're doing that?
3: Um, or not others so from the, from Others like... that
1: may not be as, uh, The value is not there for good design For the, the health yeah. and the well-being But more for the profit motive
3: yeah, you know, um, one, this goes back to my my days working in the philanthropic world and the nonprofit sector on, you know, social justice issues and other types of, of issues. You know, you need to build a research base of um, proof of concept. And so our foundation over the last six years has invested over a million dollars into research on, you know, different types of spaces and different types of impact and, and really, underpinning um, this message that we're, we're doing with real hard data. Um, and the, the architecture and design community has, has a body of knowledge that, that really supports this as well. So we've been collecting that and using that to um, create a foundation underneath this. We're also creating a community community. Of people and partners. Some people have been leading causes and the charge in areas, and we've been joining them. Um, In other places, we have been leading and asking others to join us. And we're creating a common set of platforms around sustainability, health, wellness, and well-being and resiliency. And sort of under those buckets, there's different things and topic areas that we focus in on. Um, You know, for instance, our friend's at AERP who really care about the aging population and our messages around how in our research around how design impacts, you know, populations as they age and their mobility changes and shifts and how spaces need to support that. So a home, you know, really needs to be created and, and built um, in a way that you know, at the point where maybe my shoulders are are getting to a point where they're a little arthritic or something, and I can't reach up to cabinets above. How do my how do I get to plates that maybe used to be stored up there but need to be stored someplace else, and countertops that need to be at different heights, and and uh, maybe I have a walker now and I need to get around in a different way, and and my hallways need to kind of support that, and bathroom needs to support that. So, these communities of folks who care about people we're adding to design to their voice. Um, so, you know, there's foundations out there that are looking to solve some of the most entrenched problems in the world, and what we're trying to do is talk about where design has a role to play in that. You know, we, we're a part of a conference that Fordham University and the United Nations International Organization on Migration put on where we uh, looked at design for humanity, and it was looking at the refugee crisis. There are... Every two seconds, somebody moves into refugee status, um, and we have the largest refugee population in the world since World War II right now no going way. on. Oh, my gosh. Um, two and, seconds? and it I'm really sorry,
1: Randy. This is just amazing. Unbelievable. Every yeah, two seconds, a person every moves. Every two to- seconds.
3: Yeah, and that's through either a hurricane or earthquake or fire event that displaces people through those events or a uh, political unrest um, that causes people to flee their homes for their own safety. And, you know, we believe design has a role to play there. Um, and, I mean, if you go to the fundamentals of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, shelter and food and access to warmth and clothing is just a basic fundamental need that human beings have. And without it, we we're we, I mean, just too many bad things happen to us. So, you know, where does design play a role in that? Cause you know, design is about shelter uh, and improving that access to shelter, whether it's temporary to, or permanent. Um, and many times temporary shelter becomes permanent shelter um, in lower, particularly for really impoverished communities or impoverished uh, countries. You know, If you're in Haiti and your entire community is destroyed through an earthquake, wherever you temporarily shelter from that earthquake is going to wind up being the next city. And if it's not designed well, it's going to wind up being the same that it was before, which is waiting for the next earthquake or next situation to take place and and impoverish people again.
1: Your design has a role to play. Um, It goes back to, again, that human development the facet of your, uh, your skill set. Um, it really does. I mean, I've got an arrow on my notes that, that, that have that. So in essence, and this is just not a, just because I'm biased and, and, and believe this, that design does have a role to play in the entire, in a society of the betterment of a society. Do you think it has a role in every facet of society design? I,
3: I believe there is a role for designers to play pretty much, Everywhere, because we—it's you know our urban environments are created through design, hopefully with intention. <laughs> yeah. Our uh, so our cities, we our communities, our buildings, our places we live, we work, we play, we heal. Whether it's a landscape architect, an architect, an interior designer, an urban planner, you know that design community has an ability and if brought to the table when investments are being made and other types of uh, things are happening, can help decision makers make better decisions and help us not get into situations where, you know, we we are currently in our society. You know, we're in San Francisco, we're dealing with a, a crisis of, of housing affordability. And uh, and you have in many cities, um, rural areas and urban places that are really being underutilized or overutilized, um, unfortunately. And then you have future and things that are happening in technology and innovations that are taking place that are going to impact cities. And, and, you know, there's a lot of conversation and, you know, cities designed for cars. Well, cars, what about cities designed for people? And that, you know, mobility of people and getting around and living and and working and communing as human beings is really what cities should be designed for, not for how cars get through a grid and efficiently move in and out of suburbs. So those are all things I believe designers have a role to play. I don't elevate designers to be the only solution providers out there. I think they're part of a larger fabric of people that... but their voice sometimes is missing when people are coming up with solutions and the methodology, the design thinking methodology and problem solving that designers um, are trained in when that's not a part of the approach to some of these problems. I think it's missing dimensions. And I, you know, they're, they're innately trained in that area.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I'm going to ask Charlotte, our, uh, who's audio engineering, her backgrounds in, in fine arts, and she's experienced a lot of things around the world from, at a, a street level to Lear Jets. Charlotte, which, do you have any question for, uh, question for Randy that you may be thinking of?
2: Oh, I always think the best example of a well-designed city, and maybe one of the oldest and most popular, happens to be Paris, France. Oh, really? Because when Napoleon raised the city to, basically he raised the ghettos to widen all the boulevards, and because Paris has such an amazing metro system, when I lived there for five years, nobody, I would never want a car because the metro system was designed so as to be within a 15 minute walk for anybody and for everybody. And so that was an equalizer. But, but actually the real equalizer was Napoleon himself and his architect. Exactly. Uh, his, really? Yeah. His houseman was his architect. They put everything was eight stories or something close to, you know, the, the workers from inside the household or even the workers from around the city. They always lived in the very top apartments very high, the, the top, like the top floor, the eighth floor, and they always retail on the first floor. You know, on the on the street level, and then there was like a hierarchy of society that was like the first two floors, and then there was more housing in between the fourth and so it was an equalizer. Everybody was there. Were, there wasn't an opportunity to have like the suburb over here and this ghetto ghetto over here, and they had to commute to their jobs, or you know somebody had to come in from Livermore to come work at Stanford, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know cause big traffic clog, and so all all of that was it's still intact, and I think it's one of the most workable and viable cities in the world. Is, is, is so a it's a great example that everybody should be turning back to because it's all there in classical design somewhere on the planet
1: yeah what's your what's your take on that Randy i'm curious <laughs>
3: well, i hundred percent agree with charlotte and and I think that where she ended that is in classical design you know when when we didn't have the mechanical systems that we have today and you needed to have buildings and cities and spaces really support human beings because you couldn't, you know, create an air conditioned environment. You didn't have massive ability to ship food um, around the world. You didn't have these other components of modern lifestyle. The cities had to be designed to support the life of a human being. And you had natural systems that supported that life and that, that work and that, well, you know, and, and you didn't have, you couldn't fly people around. You couldn't, you know, like you said, bust people in from you know five, six, seven neighborhoods um, from where they were working, so that classical design was thought of all those things um, because the designers again were problem solvers. I think there was a period where um, that got lost uh, and it became much more focused in on the both the operational systems um, that allowed buildings to become sort of these tight envelopes that didn't breathe. And you had other ways of getting people around that didn't require you to think some of these big ideas through. But we're coming back to it. I, I see it like there's this whole... Concept of sustainability and health and wellness and well-being, where it's we've got to correct the errors of our past, otherwise we are destined to a world which we I don't think any of us want to see happen, and it is getting closer and closer that we are going to see that happen. I mean, Paris again is leading the charge with the climate accord, and the, the the messages that we're hearing are not good. And the built environment has a, a very important role to play in getting us back on track. In, in reversing some of the the climate and and cataclysmic events that we could be exposed to if we don't start working quickly at solving these problems again.
1: Excellent, my great friend Larry Taman, who's in studio with with us today, um, had a great question. What's the impact of driverless cars? In your uh, your opinion, your experience, or your vision?
3: Yeah, you know, there's a lot of conversation going on right that right, right now in the design world, and there, the one of the components of the conversation, and again, I think this is where a group of a large group of people from multiple disciplines, um, including design, needs to be getting together in a room um, and talking about this. But you how many cities have you know these huge, huge plots of land that are dedicated to parking? And the big question is, do you need parking if you have driverless cars? And do you need the amount of cars that we have and the amount of of infrastructure that 's laid out for automobiles if that 's the case and in the future so there is a a problem of which I think design uh, approaching problem, which I think design has a role to play in figuring out how do we utilize these the space um, more effectively and recoup that space for purpose versus an investor coming along and deciding they want to do something you know fun or or foolish with it and I think that's again where intent and designers at the table really can proactively begin to address this issue versus reactively addressing it when um, we wind up in the situation where driverless cars are a norm.
1: Yeah. What do you see also, um, what's your experience with, in, since you've been uh, the CEO, of working with entities that the you know previous leadership was in? I mean, do you see, obviously you see a difference, but how do you feel it from a, a city level, like uh, either mayors or directors or governorships? Have you, have you, felt the impact or they expressed to you the impact, the positive impact of, of, your, uh, of your involvement?
3: We have been involved in environments of educating, you know, particularly from an interior design perspective of the legislators. Um, we, we believe that there are cities out there and leaders within cities who um, do get this very, very deeply. You know, many of them are in cities that are probably uh, exposed to some of the negative impacts that happen when either cities that are more ripe for hurricanes and and other types of, of climate change events that are thinking about resiliency now and the Rockefeller Foundation has really started incentivizing cities to... Um, to have chief resiliency officers. We're okay. a part of a, a, a chief. coalition. Sorry. Chief
1: resiliency nope. officers?
3: Yes. Okay. So that would be somebody in a city who would have their primary focus is how to ensure that their city is resilient. And that's. You know, for me, when I think about resiliency, it's proactive and reactive. It is the proactive side is obviously you're prepared for something that you know will happen, um, and it's the building up of, you know, the infrastructure, and you know, and and helping the health and wellness and well-being and the mental kind of state of the community to keep them not living in fear, but more living in, I know what to do if something were to happen, and or I'm more assured that I'm going to be protected if something happens kind of, uh, of approach to this. But the the folks who are in the chief resiliency officer really are about assessing their cities and, and creating plans and implementing those plans to ensure that their cities are viable um, going into the future. And the Rockefeller Foundation has 100 Resilient Cities initiative um, that they started on, so, and it's a global initiative. And then they bring those folks together as a community to share knowledge, um, so lessons learned, uh, practices that work in, in certain environments, and how can they share them with others that have similar environments because um, obviously one solution doesn't fit all. You know, we've also, in our education work, we've been involved with the National Building Museum And that has been an effort to also expose people to some of these larger forces that are impacting our society. Um, They had an exhibition on uh, designing for disaster, which looked at the sort of mitigating solutions that, you know, you can put in place for fire, wind, water type events that um, we're all susceptible to across this country, um, across the world. We also looked at the changing in the the demographics for society regarding regarding housing. And right now, over 50% of homes which are usually over 1,500 square feet. I know that's uh, not necessarily everywhere, um, but the average is over 1,500 square feet are being occupied by one and two people. That used to be a family of four and now it's one or two people, and we have an affordability issue, so how? what are the solutions we can begin to take some of this inventory and change it? The other is, when I was mentioning the aging population, is we have worked when the Obama administration was in to get Shelly Siegel, who's a ASID fellow, uh, appointed to the U.S. Access Board, um, and so she's helping to shape, um, you know, the future of ADA, the uh, American Disabilities Act, and how we can take a human-centric approach of from a, a interiors perspective, um, and build out the standards and guidelines related to ADA um, in the future, and just other you know code issues. We're we're working with code council folks um, on not just looking at codes from a standpoint of them being prescriptive related to things that we've already been exposed to, but being proactive in sort of looking at some of the issues that we're we're dealing with in society and how could codes actually support solutions in those areas. And so that's a a larger impact. You know, a reactive one, unfortunately, is school safety and how can design help us with the massive school shooting issues that we've had in our society. Um, You know, we don't want our children going to to school and and having them feel like they're in a fortress um, every day. But we do have a problem, and I think design has a way of humanly and humanistically protecting our children through solutions that don't make it feel like you're in a jail um, when you go to school.
1: Yeah, This is the Modern Architect on KZSU, 90.1 FM, Stanford. The National Resources Defense Council
2: is an environmental action group that combines the grassroots power of more than 2 million members and online activists with the courtroom expertise of nearly 500 lawyers, scientists, and other professionals. The NRDC staff works with businesses, town leaders, and community groups on issues such as global warming, clean energy, safe water, and endangered wildlife. To become a member or donate, visit
1: NRDC.org. We're talking today with Randy Pfizer, CEO of the American Society of Interior Designers. For more information, you're free to visit www.acid.org. That's www.acid.org. Randy, before I rudely interrupted you, you were talking about the human centric approach. Please carry on. That's awesome. I like it.
3: There's just, uh, it gets back to your, your, um, where your question was leading me into that was, um, that, You know, where, where are we at with legislators and, and the larger regulatory community and, and how can our community be a part of the conversation and dialogue of both educating and informing them, but also in the, the side of, of creating solutions that begin to impact the, the world that we live in. And, you know, we're, we're also part of co, or parts of coalitions um, that focus in on resiliency um, and we're looking at these issues of, uh, you know, the refugee crisis and other things. And, you know, there we're working with the United Nations and, and, and informing them about where design has a role to play. So it's, it's far and wide, and I, I love that I have colleagues at uh, the American Society of Landscape Architecture at AIA that are also see these issues as important. And it's great when we can work side by side with architects and landscape architects and urban planners and others, and and demonstrate the value that the interior design. Or being a very human-centric focused community, uh, have to play groups as a part of a community. That's where ASID has really been focusing our our time and attention is is as I mentioned you know earlier is building the resource bank that says um, you know there this does matter um, we have evidence that shows this um, and then and by the way we also have a community of people who are trained and educated and examined even to provide these solutions and we're we are a, a very important part of this larger community of folks who who really deal with um, some of these these issues, and that's not to say. Again, going to our other side of the equation um, of this is that you know designers are also helping businesses by doing the things that we were talking about with with ASID, um, designing offices and workplaces, and that support improvements in productivity. So businesses thrive and are better. You know, working with our healthcare system and ensuring that patients are healing faster and getting out of hospitals more quickly. And then as that whole you know healthcare. Delivery system is evolving and changing. You know, when you have, Aetna and CVS merging, and you have um, other people, uh, Amazon and others, looking at delivery of pharmaceuticals and how healthcare is going to be delivered. Again, it raises a question for me: Is what does the 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 patient doctor relationship, which uh, is it, is it virtual, is it physical in a in an office? But where is that office, and how does that play out? And what is the design of that space needing to? look like in order to to keep people healthier um, in the future and to deal with some of these chronic issues that we're we also deal with in our society
1: i like randy how you have you work with the legislators educate inform how about that changing behavior facet what's your experience with the change of behavior
3: you know, for, for me, changing, um, behaviors is giving people a compelling reason to change behavior. Yeah. They need to have, not to get too esoteric with it, a new narrative. It goes back to when I was talking about with the homes for working families and conversation. That, that, that phrase homes for working families was very intentional. It was a research project that we did that we tested you know words like home versus affordable housing. You know there's a very different connotation of That's what right. you're talking about there. Homelessness and um, and or lower socioeconomic community or unemployed um, housing and things like that don't have the same connotation as homes for working families, because many times lower socioeconomic housing, um, affordable housing. Has always been designed for people who work, who have jobs. Um, they just can't afford to live in the neighborhoods where they work, and they. And so, when you talk about homes for working families, and you paint a picture of, we're talking about teachers, we're talking about nurses, we're talking about firefighters, um, and you're able to tell stories of people who you know everybody can relate to, who need affordable housing. The nimbyism begins to shift. The not in my backyard begins to, oh, I, I don't mind having my t- my t- daughter's uh, or son's teacher living next to me. Uh, yeah, the firefighter, that's an important person to have in my neighborhood. The police officer, that's an important person to have living next door to me. The nurse is an important person to have living next to me. And and then you get into, you know, you can tell lots of stories. You can tell the positives and you can tell the, the places, um, you know, Manhattan during nine eleven one of the biggest issues that of of that travesty of an event was that the firefighters and police officers and first responders who weren't at work at the time that the towers collapsed could not get into the city because they didn't live in the city and they couldn't, there was no public transportation and no way to get into the city at the time. So nobody could get to work to help the community that needed help. And, that changes the whole dynamic of thinking for folks, and so that's the human behavior side. You've got to change the narrative. If designers believe that the only way they become successful is to design luxury and lifestyle then they will do that because there's probably images of people who are successful designers who have done that. When you change the narrative to designers being successful because they're designing for everyone and they're success, running successful businesses and they also feel good um, for the work that they're doing, you suddenly get the design community shifting their focus and you get everybody else surrounding it changing their focus. And you have now the the voice of a community who is speaking to an audience that is waiting to hear a different narrative about what design is. If you keep putting glossy magazines in front of them and saying, this is design, that's what that, that client base is going to believe design is too.
1: Very true. Very true. Are there any, anything that we may not have touched on Randy in our show on our show that uh, you'd like to share with the, share with the audience?
3: Only the, I, that I would say thank you so much for, for giving us this opportunity to have the conversation. I really passionately believe in what this community of um, architecture and design does on behalf of society. And I, I do, their importance in our world is, is really at a critical point right now and has the ability to really positively change so much. And it just makes me happy that you've given us an opportunity to have a conversation about that.
1: Oh, Thank you very much, Randy. It's been a real honor and pleasure having you on our show. Thank you very much, Randy.
3: Thank you, Tom. And oh. thank you, Charlotte.
1: <laughs> and thank you, Larry. Thank you uh, uh, very, very much. I hope you consider have, coming on our show again uh, in the very near future, Randy. I'd be honored. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Modern Architect. I'm Tom DiOro. Our guest today has been Randy Pfizer, CEO of the American Society of Interior Designers. The Society of Interior Designers helps spread the mission of Design Impacts Life. As the CEO, Randy leads the Society's 25,000 plus members from commercial and residential sectors across North America to advance the profession and communicate the transformative power of design on people's lives. For more information, feel free to visit www.acid.org. That's www.a S-I-D dot Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, influencer, engineer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern Architect is recorded
2: at Stanford University Studios in Stanford, California, and on location in California, and is a production of KZSU Radio. Today, the recording engineer is charlotte m thornton chief engineer mark lawrence and we're all assisted by Ashke yaki and the executive producer and host of the modern architect is tom dioro if you wish to contact us our email address is interviews with an s at kzsu.stanford.edu again that's interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu